Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman in Fukuoka, Japan. Christopher has the day off again today, but I'm very pleased to introduce our very special guest host. With me today in Tokyo is Matt Alt, author of Pure Invention, among many other things, including a section in the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, as well as Japan Times articles on Japanese cocktails. So certainly an expert in what we're talking about today. You may remember Matt from episodes 52 and 53, when we did a two-part series on the life of Jokichi Takamine. But today we're going to talk about one of Matt's other favorite topics, which is <laughs> classic Japanese cocktails. Matt, thank you so much for joining me again on Japan Distilled. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm not sure which is my favorite of these two. They're so great. Uh, Jokichi Takamine is, is, a, is, is a favorite topic, but cocktails, you know, we live with cocktails. Cocktails, I haven't, you know, I've never met Jokichi Takamine, but I've met quite a few cocktails. So. <laughs> you know, Japan to me is not really a cocktail culture in the way that we think of it in the West. Mm -hmm. When you go out drinking with people, which obviously is something that happens a lot in Japan, um, it's not that Japan is a nation of teetotalers at all, but cocktails to me are a very Western expression of individuality. You're in a group, you're like, oh, I want this. You're kind of you're, you're kind of peacocking your sophistication and your and your tastes and your own uniqueness by choosing a cocktail. And people in groups tend to get different cocktails in the West, is my experience. Mm -hmm. In Japan, you tend to drink what the group is drinking. Mm -hmm. And this isn't some kind of like brainwashing or some kind of quashing of individuality. What it is, is just not wanting to stick out or you know make yourself seem like the center of attention. You're just kind of going along with things. And so, you know, as I'm sure you've been in, in many cases you'll go into a bar with somebody, everybody gets a beer for the first round. And then somebody will say, hey, I want to switch to this. And then everybody else, ah, isho, isho, I'll have that too. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like a bonding experience. So you don't get the, 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 the cocktail culture here in Japan is not, it, it developed along a different sort of path than it did in the West. And the Western cocktails that you drink here in Japan tend to be found at very Western oriented bars, right? Ginza, and other kind of uh, swanky areas. Would you would you agree with that? Absolutely. As I think about cocktails, I think of the restaurant bar, the hotel bar. Yes. In in the West, right, where you you come in before your reservation, you have a drink or two, and then you're you're seated at your table and you have your meal, and you have your wine or whatever. You might finish at the bar for another drink or something like that. But if you go to restaurants here in Japan those bars usually don't exist. You don't have a cocktail bar inside a restaurant very often at all. No. Unless they're trying to mimic a, a Western experience. Definitely. And and hotels here, you know, if you're thinking about the places that Japanese people gravitate towards, it's not Western style hotels. It's Minshuku. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Ryokang. Like uh, Ryokang is a more upscale sort of traditional Japanese lodging experience. And they don't have bars. You are served your, your liquor or your beer or your spirits with the meal. Right. You know, and of course you can, I'm sure you, you, there are opportunities to drink outside of meals, but not at a bar, you know, where you're sitting at a bar. It tends to be, maybe you're in the bath, 
you know, with a little floating uh, <laughs> bottle of sake with you, which is a, a fun way to uh, to get inebriated in a traditional Japanese way. Or maybe you're, you know, just in your room with friends, but it, it's there's not a bar. So bars are very Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think of they're ubiquitous in in the Western world, but they were imported here to Japan. Right. And they are actually where those Western style hotels that cropped up in major cities after the opening of the Japanese ports in the 1860s, and especially after tourism really started taking off in the in the in the 18 what is 80s around that kind of time frame, after the political situation had calmed down a bit, that is where most of the cocktail culture that that we would recognize as cocktail culture originated in Japan. Right. And it's very much driven by, I guess, those classic cruise ships and and then the the grand hotels where even today when you go to a a proper Japanese cocktail bar, you're seeing a man in a tuxedo. Yes. And he's making each drink one drink at a time. Well that's that's called international bartending because it's mm-hmm. just like you say, it was on cruise ships and hotels and it it was really preserved in a sort of a time capsule here in Japan. That's right. Yeah. You're very unlikely to see any tattooed bartenders or anybody with, you know, long flowing hair or, you know, uh, all of all of the the ways that we tend to think of American bartending, at least like the craft bartenders now are all in leather aprons and right and hipster duds. And also using hipster kind of mixology with like a fat washed and like, you know, all these infusions. And I've there there are bars that do that sort of thing in Japan. But by and large, when you go to a a traditional Japanese cocktail bar of the sort, that's kind of a time capsule international bartending you won't find any strange infusions or anything like that they're 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 by and large using uh uh right off the shelf you know beef eaters gin mm-hmm. uh in angostura bitters they're, they're not doing anything really exotic with the ingredients what they're doing is showing off their crafts personship mm-hmm. and generally it's, it's men you don't see a lot of women bartenders in the traditional bartending field here in japan but that is changing that is for sure. In fact, uh, bartender of the year last year was actually a woman in Miyazaki. Excellent. So yeah, she was very, very pleased. I was able to visit her bar just after she won. Oh, that's great. I'd, I'd love to check that out. Unfortunately, I forget her name or that of the bar, but I'll be sure to put it in the show notes. It was a nice experience. And and she was wearing a tuxedo. Of course. Well, of course. I mean, well, that's the thing. Japan is such a uniform culture. And, you know, it's I, I think that there's it's no uh, uh, mystery why cosplay really took off here in Japan. Like, you know, Japanese uh, love dressing for the, the occasion mm-hmm. that goes way back to how you would select, I think, your kimono for the season and and even the time of day uh, sometimes where it's just very much a, a kind of part of sophistication in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so of course you're going to be wearing a tuxedo behind the bar. You have to be, you know, and I'd love that. One of the things that I tell my foreign visitors when they come to Japan and we go to a cocktail bar is, you know, very quickly figure out what your first drink is. And as soon as that drink arrives at the table, order your next one. Right. Because it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. And especially if the bar is busy. Absolutely. And I would, you know, as just as a recommendation, I would recommend you know, picking something classic, mm-hmm. you know, a martini, you know, or, or like, you know, uh, or ask the bartender what their kind of signature drink is and, uh, try that first, you know, just don't, don't go in with expectations that you're going to necessarily be seeing something explosively new. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, That's it's right. a place to appreciate the classics. That's right. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Choose something that is 
you know, a classic that it's, it's going to be very well made. It's going to be made with care. But the other side of it is, I think what you mentioned is I know what their specialty is, is there are bars where they'll make you anything. Oh, sure. But they are known for one specific drink. Yes. And you should go in knowing what that drink is because it will be the best one of those you've ever had. Definitely. Like in the Ginza, you know, you go to Starbucks, the white lady, you know, or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. I, I think it's also key to keep in mind what are the roles that these sorts of establishments play in Japanese culture. And when you're talking about, for instance, a Ginza cocktail bar, it, it, it it's not a place to go in and get drunk. It's not a place to go in and cut loose and, and let it all hang out like it might be at, a, at an American uh, a bar. What it is, is a place to quietly do high end deals between salarymen. Um, and that's why they're very slow also in, in bringing out the cocktails because they don't want to be disrupting important conversations by asking you how your drink was or what do you, you know, and, and it's understood you're probably not going there to get sloshed. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going in there to kind of impress and, and, and show off your sophistication and be in a very quiet sort of place where you can deal wheel and deal. So if you're looking for, you know, Western style uh, uh, kind of a party atmosphere, you, you definitely should not be going to g- at least Ginza style bars. You should probably be heading out to more kind of neo fusion ones, which there are definitely, you know, popping up here and there in the city, uh, in Tokyo, especially one of my favorites is called trench bar trench. And that is definitely kind of following the lead of Western mixology rather than Japanese. Yeah, I think we'll we'll certainly have you on for another episode on <laughs> modern Japanese cocktails on the transition that's happening, and it's happening rapidly. It sure is. There really has been a, a pretty amazing shift in in bartending culture in Japan. A lot being driven by Japanese bartenders who learned overseas and brought their craft back. The irony is that you know for a long time in in the states and and writers like David Wondrich have written about this extensively. You know there was a kind of long dark tea time of the soul there. This kind of dark period in the post war era where the only cocktails you could get at an American bar, like that whole kind of tuxedoed bartender style, went went out of style, went out of fashion. Mm-hmm. And you know you could get a martini most anywhere, but the rest of it were all these like really fruity, kind of quick to mix you know, drink like sex on the beach or like a kamikaze, you know, or a Harvey Wallbanger. And and they were about getting drunk and partying. It wasn't about the 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 craftsmanship of the cocktail. And it, it Western modern mixology as we think of it now, with all of its craftsmanship, all of its craftspersonship, is in the West, kind of dates back to the late 90s when Western bartenders came to Japan and realized that Japanese bartenders were doing the same thing that bartenders had done back in the 1920s, 1930s. Mm-hmm. There was never a prohibition here. There was never like any moment when when Japan collectively looked at itself and said, maybe we shouldn't have that next drink like we, like we did in the <laughs> West. There was never any question that they were going to have that next drink. And so this, co- this, this cocktail culture, along with all sorts of other drinking culture, uh, it just continued to, to grow and flourish in Japan. And I think it was a shock to a lot of Westerners when they came over in the nineties. And they're like, wow, this, look at all these and barware, you know, like shakers and stirrers and dashers and, and look at wow, they're they're carving the ice cubes into these in these elaborate shapes. We've never seen anything like this before. So the irony is that Japanese bartending, which is a sort of echo or or copy of international bartending of the turn of the 20th century, became the spark for the the renaissance in, in cocktail culture around the world at the turn of the 21st. 
That's right. And it really was, in some ways, the fact that it was a time capsule, as you mentioned before, is what helped preserve it. It really was the archives of how to do this. And because it's passed down generation to generation in the bartending community, they just maintain those traditions because that was the experience that their customers expected. Yes. And it's interesting how American bartending went so far afield when it was all of those overly sweet, boozy drinks. You know, the Long Island iced tea comes to mind is probably the worst. And all the other cocktails were lost in a way. I mean, they still existed in recipe books and that sort of thing, but very few bars were still making them. And if they were, they might just make a couple of them. Yes. And so you have all of these found recipes that have now almost new classics, right? They've become like, but nobody was drinking them. Definitely. For 30 or 40 or 50 years. And they might not have ever been popular when they were created. Yes. That they've become popular now. Yeah, they might have been just in one hotel or one bar somewhere. And you know, when I came of age, uh, literally uh, in the in the '90s, I turned I turned 21, and of course, I never I, alcohol never crossed my lips before that year. Um, I turned 21 in the early '90s, and at that time, the the height of sophistication was single malt scotch. Mm-hmm. That was what you kind of, that, that was the aspirational drink. That's what you, you know, and of course wine as well, but, um, I was always more of a spirits guy. And so you, you were, when you went down the rabbit hole, it was basically that, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't really any cocktail culture beyond like, yeah, so like a slow gin fizz or like something, you know, that any, any barkeep could whip up quickly. There wasn't even any craft beer culture really back then that was just kind of starting. So like you would have to kind of dig deep into the, into the, you know, imported single malt scotch. So it's, it's a, it's a big change. Uh, Now I think knowing your cocktails is a, is a form of sophistication. It's kind of a status symbol again, like it was in the pre-war era or the immediate post-war era, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting to me. You know, history repeats. Sure. Sure. No, it is. It is uh, always fun to think about these things. One of the most surreal moments of the pandemic for me was to be in Tokyo in a Spanish tapas restaurant in the middle of the afternoon, drinking classic Japanese cocktails from recipes from over 100 years ago. Oh, yes. You are to thank for that. We were in Nakano, which is a a, a neighborhood in Tokyo near and dear to my heart because it is home to uh, Mandarake, which is like a giant shopping mall full of uh, old robot toys and comic books and like anime cells. It's like designed for middle-aged otaku like myself. (laughs) But uh, nearby, there's a really great bar with a um, very talented woman behind the stick, as they say. And our friend, my my old friend, uh, Kazuo Ishikura, who is a cocktail historian in Japan and who I learned a great deal of cocktail, local cocktail history from was with us. He directed, he brought in a bunch of his own spirits and directed the bartender there to make us a bunch of really interesting cocktails. And I believe, was it the first time that you had ever had the famed uh, cocktail known as the Japanese? It was. In fact, I believe we had two or three different classic Japanese cocktails that I'd never had before. I'd heard of them. I'd never actually had a chance to try one. So for for those who might not be up on their U.S.-Japan history, uh, 1854, Commodore Matthew Perry sails into the, uh, you know, Edo Harbor and basically forcibly opens Japan by gunboat diplomacy to the West. 
not everybody in Japan was very happy about opening to the West. And those first years, especially the 1850s and 1860s, were literally like a wild West over here. The only people who came to Japan at that time were like either adventurers or like sailors. And uh, Ishikuna-san, who taught me a lot about Japanese uh, cocktail culture, traces the kind of the, the very earliest in, influx of spirits into Japan was at a place called the Hotel Huffnagel in Yokohama, which was operational in the 1860s and was run by a crusty old seaman. It was like something out of the show Deadwood. I mean, it was a fortified <laughs> compound. If you went out at night or into the wrong section of town, you were likely to be attacked, not by robbers, but by samurai who were really, really angry at what was the, the kind of modernization uh, that was happening to the country. They were being stripped of their aristocratic status. They really didn't like outsiders. And there were many instances of people being like slashed to death. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was uh, at the Hotel Huffnagel, the bar was also used as a makeshift morgue, just to give you a kind of sense of what this place was like. And Ishikura-san even managed to track down that their favorite game in the bar was to get drunk and shoot their revolvers at a clock on the wall in the room. You couldn't go out at night. And so, but there weren't many cocktails being served up at this time. Mm -hmm. It was still mainly like barrels of spirits, like ale, wine, and stuff like that. It wasn't until the, the politics kind of calmed down in the 1860s that hotels opened up here, like, like hotels we would think of as modern hotels now. And, and the grandest of those was known as the Grand Hotel in Yokohama. And that was widely visited by a lot of, well, they're not jet setters. I guess they're boat setters back at this time. International travelers... Uh, Japan was seen as a very exotic. This was the midst of the Japanism uh, movement, where you know all sorts of Japanese art and craft products were flooding into the European markets and kind of enchanting Westerners with this idea of Japan. Madame Butterfly, you know, you have the writings of Lafcadio Hearn, you know, you've got all sorts of you know the woodblock prints influencing the the impressionists. So this is like a kind of a big moment. And uh, Westerners started to come to Japan and they would, you know, stop by the hotels uh, if they could afford it for a cocktail. There were cocktails that were made literally to kind of evoke Japan at this time. Mm -hmm. The most famous, which is still drunk regularly now, is called the bamboo, the invention of a, a barman named Louis Eppinger, who was the bartender at the Grand Hotel in Yokohama. And it's a mixture of, it's a very bracing, it's not bracing, how, how should I put this? It's, it's actually quite light alcohol. It's, it's a mixture of vermouth and uh, sherry. Mm -hmm. And it's astringent, I think is what you'd call it. It's the kind of thing, it's like, a, it's like an aperitif. Yep. You know, th this is the thing. So what is a cocktail, right? The traditional definition of a cocktail is a spirit, bitters, and then, you know, one other component. Maybe it's some kind of like, you know, soda or juice or you know, or, or, or whatever it is. And so a bamboo is just, is just sherry and vermouth together. It's not really what we think of as a cocktail, but it is, you know, it's, it's, and it's fun. It's just, it's the kind of thing you don't see much in the West because people tend to want to like, you know, they, they want to, it's, it's simple, you know, it's, it's a very simple sort of construction concoction. Sure. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, yes. So, Cocktail culture was in, was in, and I believe, you know, you had, you had this, didn't you? Didn't we have it at the, uh, at the bar? What did you think about it? We did. I, it wasn't my favorite, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you just had to be there in 1870s Japan. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And also, you know, you had a, I guess the bartender probably hadn't made a whole lot of them in no. 
in her time at the Spanish tapas restaurant. No, although, you know, but Sherry or Jerez is is her stock and trade. So, you know, she's and they have some great stuff there. But yeah, no, I'm sure we were the first ones, uh, you know, to order it in probably since the last time Ishikurasan was in there. I'm sure he orders it from time to time. But yeah, you'll remember the the other cocktail that that we had, the uh, the Japanese, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the Mikado. Um, I'm sure you remember that one. Brandy base. A whole lot of bitters in there, and not just any bitters. It's like Boker's bitters, which is a a, a kind of vintage. Uh, it, it's kind of strong in the cardamom, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, v- like a huge amount of bitters. There's like a tablespoon of bitters in each cocktail, <laughs> and uh, and a whole lot of sugar as well. In keeping with that kind of 19th century vibe, when I think the spirits weren't necessarily of the quality that we associate with now. And so large amounts of sugar were often added to drinks. The way that we had it was actually, they kind of ticked the, the, the sugar back a bit, mm-hmm. which is which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And was that the one that we tried like three different variations on? Yes. And so the 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 Japanese cocktail is interesting. It was it was first popularized around 1860 uh in the United States to commemorate the first Japanese legation, which basically means uh, uh diplomatic mission to the United States, which happened in that year. And that was a, a kind of big moment where they ratified this treaty of friendship and commerce and navigation between uh, Japan and the United States. And it was a like a huge moment in American pop culture because you had this group of guys who literally look like samurai, like top knots, samurai sword, tanto, katana on their side in full, you know, Japanese style dress, walking around major American cities like San Francisco and New York and Washington, DC. There's an amazing, amazing engraving of the president of the United States receiving these guys in the White House, and they're just they just walk into the Oval Office with their swords on. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, they're probably the first and last people to walk into the White House with, you know, with Japanese steel on their on their waist. Although, you know, this is this is 1860s America, so it's entirely possible the president had like a gun you know, strapped on his body somewhere. Right. You know, I don't I don't think it was it was a kind of different sort of or maybe not so different given the way that America is going these days uh, <laughs> with all of its open, you know, carry laws and stuff. But um so to commemorate this, there were all sorts of like articles and magazines and like features and like newspaper interviews. And uh, the the bartender, Jerry Thomas, who is a, a kind of force to be reckoned with in cocktail history for anybody who studied this sort of thing, whipped up a concoction that he called the Japanese cocktail and to kind of celebrate this. And the, the really funny thing about the Japanese cocktail, it's also known as the Mikado. There's nothing Japanese in it at all nothing like it's it's base is as i said brandy and it has orge in it uh, which is the almond mm-hmm. uh liqueur that you might be familiar with from a mai tai that's the kind of sweet uh aspect to it and uh as i said earlier a ton of bitters and it's a very strange sort of flavor profile even by cocktail standards you get this kind of like how would you describe it? Like, obviously, there's that nuttiness to it. Mm-hmm. Is it huge? It's it's like a it's it's almost like drinking like a frappuccino sweetness level, right? It really was, but because we had different variations on it, they they progressively got I think more palatable. <laughs> yes, 
as we got closer yes. to modern times. <laughs> yes. The original recipe was very, very unusual. <laughs> yes. Well, the original recipe is incredibly sweet. And I think probably back in the 1870s or, or 60s and 70s when this was made, sweet cocktails were were the way that most adults got their sugar. You know, when they wanted something sweet, they didn't get ice cream. They probably got a cocktail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there probably wasn't a lot of sweet stuff available uh, uh, back then. It's uh, it, it's kind of interesting that way to to kind of be, you know, time tripping back in time to what people enjoyed palette-wise back then. But the, the most interesting aspect of this was something that Ishikura-san said to us when we were drinking it. I don't know if you remember this, but he's just like, yeah, it was it was driving me crazy. Why why did they call this a Japanese cocktail? And what on earth were they thinking when they made this? Because it's not designed to appeal to Japanese people, nor does it really evoke anything from Japan. And Ishikura-san's insight was there weren't any Japanese people in America at the time. Mm -hmm. But there were a ton of Chinese people there. They had been, you know, they brought in to, to kind of work on the railroads and, and, and horrifically exploited in a lot of ways, but they were a, a feature of life in, in many American cities. And Ishikura-san's belief, and I, I think it's, it's a really interesting one, is that Jerry Thomas was attempting to recreate what we know as shokoshu in Japanese. I don't know what the English pronunciation of it is, a sweet Chinese liqueur that's served up in uh, clay pots or served out of clay pots, I should say. And it's a feature. Shokoshu is still widely uh, drunk here in Japan when you go out to eat Chinese. Um, it's a brownish. Is that Shaoxing? Is that how you say yes, it? Yes, Shaoxing wine. That's probably what it is, Shaoxing wine, right? Yeah. So it's, and it's sometimes they even drink it here with sugar in it, mm. like, you know, rock sugar at the bottom of the, of the cup. And it does have a very similar color. Mm-hmm. And especially when you drink it with rock sugar in the Shaoxing wine, it, it, the flavor profile is sort of evocative of the Japanese. So it's likely that that people back in time in America either just didn't have any access to anything Japanese to, to make their cocktail or couldn't tell the difference between Japanese and Chinese people, which is equally likely. You know, oh, Far East, Orient, you're all the same and used Chinese wine as the inspiration to make this cocktail. But that was one of the first, the Japanese. The Mikado. Yeah. You'll have to put the recipe up on the in the notes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The question is which one, because we had variations on it. You know, actually, David Wondrich's book, Imbibe, that was the first place I learned about it. And I, I, I happen to like his recipe quite a bit. So perhaps you could put that one up. Great. That sounds like an excellent suggestion. Just to kind of continue this history a little bit. So you have the hotels come in around the 1880s or so, and those hotels began to hire Japanese people to work at them. And uh, Louis or Louis Eppinger trained many Japanese people to make Western cocktails for Western customers. And there were a lot of really cool customers coming through at that time, like Lafcadio Hearn, who is uh, a favorite of mine because he's a kind of chronicler of Japanese horror stories and, and mm -hmm. yokai tales and things like that. He would go to the Grand Hotel in Yokohama and have cocktails, um, you know, which is really, you know, high praise. This guy, you know, he cut his teeth in New Orleans. He actually is the first one who um, chronicled a lot of cocktail recipes in his writings before he moved to Japan. So the Grand is where a lot of these Japanese people picked up these tricks, and then they went on to found their own bars in the Ginza area uh, in the 1910s, a period that's known as Taisho democracy in Japan. It's kind of like this pre-war era where 
Western ideas are sort of flourishing and it's looking like Tokyo might go in a kind of Parisian direction. Um, and then that all gets quickly quashed down by, for lack of a better word, the assholes <laughs> who uh, led Japan into World War II, the kind of you know right wing you know nut jobs who took Japan in this sort of uh, imperialist uh, direction. And of course, under their regime, anything Western was suspect, mm-hmm. and so cocktail culture was crushed or went underground for for a good decade and a half there, maybe two decades uh, after they took you know the kind of imperialists took power and ran Japan into the ground. And then it started to come back after World War II. You had soldiers coming into town. You had the GHQ people. They're bringing in their own ideas of what cocktail culture is, what drinking culture is. And slowly but surely, uh, those bars started to kind of come back to life, but preserving really what they had learned from Louis Eppinger and the kind of international bartending scene way, way, way back when. Yeah. And it really was the post-war revitalization, I guess, or revival of the cocktail scene that professionalized it in many ways with Tatsuro Yamazaki, who he survived the war in Tokyo, found that bartending was a way to make a decent income in a very, very dire period in Japanese history. Right. Post-war, the the poverty and starvation and everything were pretty, pretty uh, prevalent. Prevalent. And so he he ended up getting a job in a bar as a bar back and working his up to where he was running the bar and basically ended up moving up to Sapporo, uh, getting out of out of Tokyo, because I think there are just lots of not pleasant things were happening in Tokyo at the time. So he headed up to Sapporo, but he ended up uh, helping establish the first Japanese bartenders guild and really professionalizing. And he trained uh, dozens and dozens of bartenders who have bars all over the country today. Uh, all from his legacy, as well as the other bartenders that came up during that post-war era. And a lot of those guys, you can trace right back to these these early mentors of theirs. Yeah. And I, I think one of the kind of defining features of, of, this, of this international bartending scene in Japan is, is the kind of Spartan training, you know, they would, they would, it's almost like borrowed from the martial arts where you would apprentice and you know you wouldn't even be allowed to mix a cocktail for years. You'd just be cleaning the barware, cleaning the barware, wiping the bar down. You know, preparing the, you know, filling the the bitters dasher, and then finally, like eventually, you know, you would be allowed to mix your first cocktail. And it was uh, uh, the the stories, especially in the in the in the immediate pre war era and the immediate post war era, are pretty brutal. It's difficult to imagine any bartender going through this in the states where you know bartending is 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 a is a very you know honorable calling i think but i don't think i, I don't know that many people in the states see it as their you know their their full career especially back when i was growing up it seemed like it was something that people would generally transition through unless they owned the bar mm-hmm. whereas in japan it was definitely seen as a calling for the people who were in these in these very elaborate upscale establishments and you were kind of expected to kind of dedicate your life to it in a lot of ways. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's a, it, I don't think you see as much of this anymore. I think like so many other aspects of, of Japanese society, it's modernized. You don't see like the, the bartender, the master, like punching out the, you know, the, <laughs> his, his uh, apprentice, you know, for spilling a drop of bitters or something like that. But that sense of precision and that sense of craft is very much still in evidence at places like this. And, you know, that kind of sense that maybe in a good way, things are a little old fashioned. Mm-hmm. They're sticking to the classics 
It's interesting when you're saying about the apprentices, though, because it, it reminded me of Jiro Dreams of Sushi, right? Right. The guy's right. massaging the octopus or the guy's got to make his his rolled egg for the 400th time or whatever. Yes. And my good friend, Frank Cisneros, when he he was a bar owner in, in Brooklyn, and he ended up getting a, a visa to go and work in a hotel bar in Tokyo. And his very first shift, he's there and he's got his double shake going on. And he looks around and he realizes the entire bar has stopped talking and they're all looking at him and watching him. <laughs> and he he makes the drinks and he he sets them down and his his manager came over and said, that was impressive. Never do that again. <laughs> 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 and, what 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 did he want? It was it just too loud? Is that what the problem was? No, you're supposed to make each drink, drink with precision and care, one by one, right? And the fact right. that he was batching, making multiple drinks at the same time, was a no no. And then, basically, he was washing glasses and cutting fruit for the next three months. Oh, were, okay, right. They were paying him good money to work in this bar. He was supposed to be a sort of celebrity draw, yeah, for the bar. But because he did a, a two two handed shake. <laughs> <laughs> on his first shift, he ended up not being able to make another drink for three months. Yeah, it's it's that that kind of that's efficient. Sure. Cut up all the fruit at the beginning of the shift, you know, like that kind of stuff, because you're you you need to get the drinks out quickly. But that's not the way it is in Japan. That's right. It's certainly not in a place like that. Yep. You know, that that precision that, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. We were talking about this a little bit at the beginning where it's not really so much about the ingredients. It's about the process. Mm hmm. It's about the barware that you use. It's about the, you know, the hard shakes, mm -hmm. things like that. It, it's all about technique here. That's right. Whereas, of course, technique's important in the West too. Don't don't get me wrong, but in Japan, it's almost all technique. Right. You're using off-the-shelf components, and it's what can technique impart to this classic. It's like a palette for experimentation or expressing the bartender's, you know, unique abilities. Mm -hmm. on the canvas of what these, everybody knows what, what beef eaters taste like. Everybody knows what this vermouth tastes like, you know, it's, oh, but you know, he's micro aerated it, you know, that, that sort of, that sort of thing. Sure. It's much more about those details. I think going back to the sushi reference, it's really the craftsmanship, right. And the, the attention to detail and, and doing everything as close to perfection as possible. Well, this is this is what we love about things from Japan in general. Like, you know, you see that sort of craftsmanship in a lot of different spheres, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting because it's almost not for you, the customer. Mm -hmm. It's almost more about the 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 drive to do it right because it's the right thing to do. And you see this a lot in traditional Japanese craft, traditional Japanese art, where the work they're doing is almost divorced from the commerce aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in time, before gunboat diplomacy opened up the ports to the West, Japan was a caste-based society. You had aristocrats at the top. Underneath them, you had farmers. Then you had artisans. And at the very bottom of the totem pole were the merchants, mm -hmm. the people selling the things, the capitalists, so to speak, although they didn't think of it or, or call it that way at the time. And of course, you know, there were plenty of cases where a very successful merchant would be far wealthier than any aristocrat, and that created all sorts of social problems in Japan. But you see this schism between the, the makers of things and the sellers of things. 
And of course, Japan's not a caste-based society today. People are is a free country. People do whatever they want. They study wherever they want. They sell whatever they want. But I, I wonder if there are echoes of that kind of traditional, you know, it's it's Japan is a traditional culture in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if some of that kind of persists where, you know, like, I'm not here to make money. I'm here to make the greatest cocktails that I can because that's what a bartender does. You, you know what I mean? That's right. Like that, that kind of thinking. And I, 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 it's, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I guess in some ways it's the ikigai, right? It's like, what's your yeah. purpose? <laughs> exactly. Although that's a dangerous word though. Have you, you know, this is, we're going off topic here, but ikigai, you know, I know it's a big phrase in the States right now. It's like, yes, find your purpose. But ikigai in, in Japanese is extremely neutral. Jeffrey Dahmer had an ikigai. It was like killing and eating people, right? So it's like, you know, it's like if you're a, if you're a criminal, like your ikigai might be like, I don't know, the you know, smashing and you know, windows and grabbing diamond necklaces or something like that. It's not it's 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 purely neutral. In the west, it's like ikigai is the best way to live your life. You know what I mean? Fair. In, fair. <laughs> in Japan, not so much. Sorry, I'm off topic. My ikigai of course is is talking about cocktails. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, on that note, tell us a little bit about where people can find you, either on social media or otherwise. Check out my book, Pure Invention. You can find more information at pureinventionbook.com. It tells the story of Japan's rise as a cultural superpower in the post-war era. And I also have a newsletter where I explore all sorts of fun stuff relating to that uh, out of modern up-to-the-minute headlines. Check it out, pureinventionbook.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Matt underscore alt. I'm on Instagram at alt Matt alt. I'm everywhere. Just look for me. Google Matt alt. You'll find all sorts of probably strange pictures, but they're safe for work. I promise. No, but you really are prolific. I, I love your social, your Twitter and your Instagram are both uh, great. Your newsletter as well. It's, it's all really good stuff. So again, thank you, Matt, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And we'll get you back on soon to talk about modern Japanese cocktails. Looking forward to it. Thank you all very much for listening. If you have not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others find the show. And feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. And check out our website, japandistilled.com. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japandistilled. Matt, kanpai. Kanpai! We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up. Time's up.